Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. I'm in conversation today with Charles Grant, who is our director here at the CER. Charles is here to talk about what every Brexit watcher wants to know these days, which is what is the current thinking on the continent? What are the negotiation positions, the red lines of Britain's European partners when it comes to Brexit? And there's a lot of crystal ball gazing happening at the moment, trying to determine where Paris, Berlin and other major actors stand on these questions like freedom of movement reform and single market access for Britain. But Charles, you have actually been to many of the European capitals and talked to government officials, civil servants and parliamentarians. What was your impression? What is the mood on the continent right now and how has it changed since the day of the referendum? Well, I've recently been in Paris, Brussels and Berlin and I'm struck by my conversations there and in other capitals with the uh, feeling that there has to be united response to Brexit. Of course, Brexit is not everybody's priority. People in Berlin are very concerned with the refugee crisis. People in Paris are concerned about the euro. Uh, nevertheless, Brexit does matter. And I think the Commission, the Council, the Parliament, the French, the Germans and others have decided there has to be a united response. And that is, in fact, a very tough response to the British as the British prepare to invoke Article 50 of the treaties. What do you mean by a tough response? Well, for one thing, our partners, Britain's partners, are not prepared to do what they call pre-negotiations. Uh, they won't negotiate with the British until the British press the button of Article 50. Uh, of course, once the British press the button, they've just got two years to do the entire negotiation. So the British would quite like to do some of the negotiating before they press it, so they're under less time pressure. Uh, and they've gone round saying to the Germans and others, well, look, if we asked for A, B and C, how will you react? And the Germans said, sorry, uh, we're not prepared to do a pre-negotiation. You'll have to take your chances and invoke the article and then we'll talk to you. And that's one fairly tough attitude, which has upset some of the British. The other one is no compromise on the indivisibility of the four freedoms. The EU's four freedoms, so-called, are free movement of people, goods, services and capital. And there's a mantra that all EU bureaucrats, but also senior politicians, believe in, which is you can't have one of those four without the other. So if the British say, as they are saying, well, let's restrict free movement and we'll stay in the single market, our partners are saying to us, sorry, uh, we don't agree. That's against our philosophy, which is the four freedoms have to stay together. Can we unpack this philosophy a little bit, or this mantra, as you say? Where is it coming from? Why are Europeans so set on this indivisibility of the four freedoms? And do you think that that's justified? I think the European uh, obsession with keeping the four freedoms together is a mixture of philosophy, politics and economics. I mean, the philosophy is because the Treaty of Rome ref actually refers to the four freedoms, and it's what every good uh, European bureaucrat or official or <laughs> politician get, gets reared on. Um, it's in the DNA of the EU system. The economics is, and this is where I have more sympathy for the continental view, if you have free movement of services, you have to have some free movement of people because some services are not really tradable, uh, so-called, like um, teachers, nurses, hairdressers. Uh, and in order to um, have really free movement of those non-tradable services, you need to have free movement of people to make the free movement of services work. So there is some economic justification for the continental view. But I think the, the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, reasons behind this obsession with the four freedoms are institutional and political. 
The institutional one is that if you allow the British a special deal so that perhaps they could have some bits of the EU and not the other bits be half in, half out uh, in the single market, but allowing to restrict labour, then other countries inside the EU or outside would ask for the same deal. Mm. They'd ask for a privileged position on the same way that the British would have a privileged position. And then the institutional coherence and integrity of the EU could, at in theory, start to unravel. So this makes the Commission and the Parliament in particular very uncomfortable as the leading institutions of the EU. But the biggest argument of all is politics, and it's about the fear of populism. Particularly in Paris, I hear people saying, look, if, if the British are seen to thrive outside the EU, if they can have the economic benefits of membership without the costs of membership, then Marine Le Pen will point at the British and say, look, the English are doing really well over there outside the EU. They don't have to have the ECJ, the European Court of Justice rulings, and their economy is doing all right, so let's go there and join them. And so where there's a threat of populism, which is particularly the case in Paris, but also in Rome and in The Hague and, the, and many other cities, there's a feeling that we mustn't help the populace by making life outside the EU look appealing. So for all these reasons, our partners are not prepared to compromise on this point. And I think the British will have to accept that if they want to stay in the single market, they'll have to accept free movement. And we know that politically that's highly unlikely the British can accept it. So... Britain will be leaving the single market, we can predict quite safely, I believe. Now, you're saying that the Brits are going to have to accept this, but is it your impression that for now, British officials, the British government understands where the Europeans are coming from? Do they understand the rationale for the European position? I think the most senior officials who work on EU issues are quite well informed on what our partners think. But I do worry about the political class. I mean, the British political class is famously not terribly well informed on the EU. Not very many of them, Tory or Labour, have become EU experts. And I think there is a danger that the British will end up asking for things that our partners will find unacceptable and therefore that the divorce could become quite acrimonious because the British perhaps need to spend a little bit more time talking to their partners and just finding out why our partners think what they think. One argument that has been very popular in Britain was that European continentals will be likely to reform the freedom of movement in particular because they themselves have an issue with migration as well. Mm. Is that the sense that you got in your conversations? Well, in London, I keep on hearing politicians of all parties say, well, we're not so special in Britain. We don't want a lot of free movement with the EU. But the reality is immigration is not popular on the continent and so our partners will come round to our viewpoint and maybe by the time we leave the EU they'll be willing to give Britain a special deal on migration because they themselves will be restricting it. But I have to say I think this analysis you hear in London is, is false, it's not well informed. It is true migration is a big issue in many EU countries but in my view the thing that matters most in say Germany isn't intra-EU migration, it's extra-EU migration. It's not Polish plumbers, it's Syrian refugees. I don't see continental European countries really converging with the British. The British have a particular problem with EU migration. Most other countries have a particular problem with extra-EU migration. Mm. Now, we often think about these negotiations as if the UK was on one side of the table and the EU was on the other side. But of course, Britain is going to have to negotiate with 27 different member states with national interests. Do you sense differences already? Are there topics where Paris, Berlin and Rome disagree? 
At the moment, the 27 are maintaining quite a good common front, quite a, a solid common front vis-à-vis -vis the British. I mean, this may change, but do remember that the main negotiating will be done by the European Commission on behalf of the EU, following a mandate set by the European Council, where the member states are represented. And I think the Council will monitor and watch over the Commission as it negotiates, but the Commission will do the negotiating. The Parliament will also play a role, not in the negotiations themselves directly, but remember that the Parliament has to approve the deals after both the Article 50 divorce settlement and the free trade agreement that the British will negotiate with the EU in the long run. So the Parliament's an important factor. I don't at the moment detect big differences amongst the 27 and the institutions, except of tone. The French and the Commission and the Parliament take quite a tough line in tone, warning the British not to expect compromises. The Germans who perhaps regret the Britain, British departure much more than the French, adopt a softer, more, more, more friendly tone sometimes. But on the substance, I don't see a difference. Will that change as time goes on? Will German industry lobby for a very good deal for the British? Because it could be the interest of German industry. Well, it might do. But don't assume that German industrial lobbying necessarily changes policy. German industry has been lobbying against the sanctions on Russia set by the EU for the last two years without much impact. So um, at the moment, it looks like the EU is going to take a hard line. Uh, the EU countries, rightly or wrongly, doing what they believe is in their interest, which is main maintaining the institutional coherence of the EU, not allowing countries to be half in, half out, and saying to the British, if you want to be in the single market, you've got to accept free movement. Okay, now to close this and in view of everything that you've just said, what's your advice to British negotiators, to the British government? How should they approach these negotiations? I'd have a, at least three pieces of advice for the British. Firstly, on the very sensitive issue of migration, don't rush into anything. We understand Britain will have to impose some limits on free movement with the EU. That is the verdict of the referendum de facto. But don't rush into it and don't do it unilaterally. Once the negotiations start, when Article 50 is invoked and you are negotiating, talk very carefully to our partners, and in particular the Germans, about what sorts of restrictions would be relatively acceptable for our partners. If the British can design a system for restricting free movement that is more or less acceptable to other countries, that'll create a lot of goodwill. Secondly, uh, a fairly obvious point, don't ask for everything. Uh, the British are in a quite a weak position in these negotiations because the clock will be ticking once Article 50 is invoked. If there's no deal at the end of the two-year period for Article 50, the British will leave the EU without any cover for their economy, without many rights for their economy, without protections for their economy, without access into the continental market. So it's in Britain's interest to get a deal. They need a deal. They need the goodwill of Britain's partners. So one way to win that goodwill is prioritise. And if you're going to ask for something really difficult to obtain, like passporting for the City of London, uh, you've got to be prepared to pay a price, perhaps paying money into the EU budget to buy access for the, to, to the single market for financial services. Uh, thirdly, very obvious point, be diplomatic, be polite. Don't thump the table, don't threaten to withhold budget payments from the EU, don't threaten to veto defence cooperation, don't make splenetic speeches where you're very rude about the EU because if you're rude you'll lose the goodwill of your partners and Britain can only get a fairly decent deal from its partners if it has their goodwill because it, it is negotiating from a fundamentally weak position. Thank you very much Charles.
Uh, Charles has also written a paper on this, which you can find on our website. And if you enjoy these podcasts, then do subscribe on iTunes and give us a rating there as well. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London. <laughs>